It's the opening scene of a film called Life Overtakes Me. It was uh, nominated for uh, the Oscar for Best Documentary Short at this year's Academy Awards. Uh, it tells this story. You can actually watch it on Netflix. It's about 40 minutes long. And it tells this story, it's a powerful story, of families who have children suffering from resignation syndrome. Uh, the, because of violence and trauma and fear and uncertainty, life has just become so overwhelming for these children that they slip into this prolonged state of unconsciousness. Resignation syndrome. A couple of weeks ago, my best friend Dan and my family and I, we went over to Omaha and we spent the day watching all of the films nominated in the category of, of Oscar short. And as I was watching this film, I mean, all sorts of things going on in my heart and in my mind. I mean, it's just devastating on so many levels. One of the thoughts I had was, as it relates to faith, as it relates to our spiritual life, how many of us kind of are suffering from resignation syndrome? Uh, we're alive, but maybe we're not really awake. We are breathing, but we're not taking any steps. We're not moving. We're not growing. We're not changing. This weekend is the final weekend in a message series where we've been talking about and taking a look at the miracles of Jesus. And today we get to a story that is just packed with meaning. We could probably do an entire message series on just this one account, uh, a day in the life of Jesus. It's packed with meaning, but we have to be awake in order to see it. So let's dig right in. We'll start in Matthew chapter 9, verse 18. As Jesus was saying this, the leader of a synagogue came and knelt before him. So this is Matthew chapter 9, but if you look in Mark chapter 5 and Luke chapter 8, you'll see the same story. Mark and Luke provide a lot of details that, for whatever reason, uh, Matthew leaves out. And so we'll be bouncing back and forth between all three Gospels as we make our way through the story. One of the details we learn from Mark and Luke that Matthew doesn't tell us about is the name of the leader of the synagogue. His name is Jairus. And uh, the synagogue leader in Jesus' day would have been a really important role, an important position in the community. The faith life revolved around the synagogue. Sure, you would go to Jerusalem, uh, you would go to the temple a couple of times a year for the high holy religious holidays, but for the most part, the day-to-day -day activity of faith revolved around the local synagogue. And so here's this man with status, and that status gives him the freedom to just go right to Jesus, to approach Jesus, but, but notice as important as he is, he still approaches Jesus from a posture of humility. He kneels before Jesus. Uh, one of the things I love about being a pastor here at Hope is I love getting to meet so many of you and hear so many of your stories. Uh, this church is filled with people who are just so fascinating, knowledgeable, and hardworking, and driven, and successful, and accomplished in so many ways. Uh, so many of you are leaders in your field, whether it's you know medicine, or agriculture, or business, or uh, finance, uh, education, politics, government, whatever it might be. Every time I have the opportunity to talk with you, I learn something from you. It's great. It's awesome. Awesome. And at the same time, it's kind of dangerous. Uh, because one of the most dangerous things in life is that we can learn how to do it. We can get good at it. And this is dangerous because if we convince ourselves we're so good at life, we can get to this place where we're like, well, who needs God anymore? 
So I don't want you to misunderstand me. I want you to get good at life. I'd like to be better at life. I just want to make sure we avoid the trap of getting so good at life that we think we no longer need God. And so every once in a while, it's important for us to consider our posture. When's the last time you knelt before Jesus? When's the last time life got so desperate that you found yourself on your knees crying out to God, looking for some kind of hope to cling to, maybe it's important this weekend for you to consider your posture. Our family went to Chicago several years ago, and uh, one of the things I wanted to do was take our kids to the top of that building that used to be called the Sears Tower. They've got that observation deck, and, and they, they call it the Sky Deck now. They've created these glass enclosures that kind of stick out from the structure of the building. So on the 103rd floor, you know, over 1,000 feet above the ground, you can step out onto this glass and, you know, take a look. And I'm not sure why anyone would think that's a good idea. Uh, actually, I do know. My, my sons, Kimball and Chayden, they were probably six or eight years old at the time. They love this. They're like, hey, can we just get our sleeping bags and pillows and camp out here? They're wrestling on the floor of this glass. Instru- I didn't even realize I was doing it, but I was just slowly kind of backing away as they were out there. And I was trying to find the middle, the center of the room, so I could grab hold of something that would make me feel safe and secure. My wife, Wendy, came over and she's like, Scott, your face is so pale. Are you sick? What's going on? I was just scared to death. A lot of people will say the higher you get up high in the clouds, the higher you get, the closer to God you are. But remember Jesus' final words to his disciples in the Gospel of Matthew is, Lo, I am with you always. Lo, I am with you always. Jairus comes to Jesus in a posture of humility. He lowers himself. He kneels before Jesus. What are the circumstances of his life that put him in that kind of a posture? This is what Matthew tells us. Next slide. It's Luke. His only daughter, who was about 12 years old, was dying. This has been a rough month or two for us as a congregation. We talked about it a couple of weeks ago, but we just keep getting prayer request after prayer request after prayer request. People have things going on in, your, in their lives, and they're asking us uh, to pray, to join them in prayer for now, people who are fighting illnesses, sickness, disease, sometimes terminal, people who are mourning, who are in grief because of a family member or a friend who has died. Uh, last weekend, my dad let me know that my Uncle Dan, who'd been, uh, fight, he'd been sick with pancreatic cancer for the last couple of years, he had died. As we go through this story, as best we can, I want us to put ourselves into the story. Try to put yourselves in the shoes of Jairus. His only daughter, who was about 12 years old, was dying. He is desperate. He's on his knees in front of Jesus because there's a circumstance in his life that he doesn't know what to do with it. I don't know what that is for you. I don't know what miracle it is you are in need of for your marriage, for your children, for your relationship with your parents, for your health, for your finances? What is it in your life today that's causing you? And let's just imagine we actually would do this. We would go to our knees in front of Jesus. We would look Jesus in the eyes and we would say, Lord, I'm actually pretty good at life, but I got this thing going on right now and I don't know what to do. I feel powerless. I feel helpless. Jesus, if you don't show up, Jesus, if you don't do something, I am not going to make it. 
and continue to imagine in your mind's eye that Jesus looks at you, Jesus takes you by the hand, he lifts you to your feet, and he looks you in the eye and he says, okay, let's do it. I've got the power, I am willing, let's go make this miracle happen. Can you imagine how excited you would be? Can you imagine how much joy, how much hope would start bubbling up inside you? This is what's going on with Jairus, and now he's ready to lead Jesus to his daughter's bedside. And, and it's taking everything Jairus has not to sprint back to his home. You, you, you know what it's like when you're in a hurry to get somewhere and you're walking fast and you got com, some stragglers with you every once in a while, you look back to make sure they're keeping up, and that's what Jairus is doing. Is Jesus keeping up? He looks back and he sees Jesus and he sees the disciples and he sees a growing crowd of people walking with him on his way back to his home and to his dying daughter. This crowd, they know who Jairus is, they know who his daughter is, and they know her situation, and they've heard Jesus say, I'm going to heal her. They want to see the miracle. And so it's this chaotic crowd kind of making their way through the streets of that village on their way to Jairus' home. He turns that final corner. It's just a block or two away. He looks back to make sure Jesus is still there, and Jesus is no longer there. Jesus was just with him a second ago, and now Jesus is gone. Where did Jesus go? Have you ever gone through situations like that where you've been so convinced, uh, you've been praying, you've been discerning, you've been listening, what does God want me to do, which decision does God want me to make, and you finally get to this settled place of peace about the decision, you make the decision, you're moving forward, and then you realize Jesus has stopped. There's this gap when it comes to faith that we don't talk about very often. That sometimes when we are being obedient, sometimes when we are being faithful, sometimes when we are doing exactly what it is that God has asked us to do, and, and we're becoming who God has asked us to be, sometimes God still says, wait. Wait. And it's really hard to wait on God when you don't have time to wait on God. Why is Jesus making Jairus wait? Just then a woman who had suffered for 12 years with constant bleeding came up behind Jesus. This is a story filled with contrasts. Remember how Jairus approaches Jesus? He, he goes right to Jesus, stands in front of him, kneels before him. He approaches Jesus from the front. This woman approaches Jesus from behind. Why? Purity codes were really important in Jesus' day. One of the ways of knowing who is in and who's out, who is holy, uh, who is righteous, and who's a sinner, they used this language of clean and unclean. And so in order to make sure you were clean, you were in a right relationship with God, there was all kinds of religious ritual and religious tradition and religious ceremony around that. There were laws and commandments from Scripture that helped people know, here's what you need to do in order to stay clean. You can read about them in places like Leviticus 15, uh, verse 19 is an example. It says, whenever a woman has her menstrual period, she will be ceremonially unclean for seven days. Anyone who touches her during that time will be unclean until evening. And if you keep on reading in Leviticus 15, and why would you not want to keep on reading in Leviticus 15, it will tell you anytime anything an unclean woman touches during this seven-day period, it becomes unclean as well. Bedding, clothing, utensils used for cooking or eating, even people. And so what is the best way to make sure an unclean woman doesn't touch you? 
isolate her. Uh, Distance yourself from her. Quarantine her. Cut her off from community. I mean, it's only for seven days. It's not that big of a deal, right? And it makes my life a whole lot better. So, hope. yeah, thank you for laughing. Hopefully you (laughs) hear the sarcasm there. Like, this is actually a really big deal. It was a big deal in Jesus' day. It's still a big deal in our day in a lot of places in this world. At 12.30 today, we're going to have an information meeting about a mission trip to South Africa. I've gone two times on this trip. I'm really looking forward to going uh, in November. I'll be bringing my daughter Kylie with me. Uh, uh, Maybe this is the right time for you to join us on this mission trip. One of the things we do every time we go to South Africa is there's a program called Days for Girls. And what Days for Girls is, it's these washable, reusable feminine hygiene kits. And so the women on the mission trip, they always spend time with some middle school students or some high school students. Here's some high school students who just did the uh, Days for Girls program. And the women on our team, they distribute these kits, but they also spend time talking with these middle schoolers and high schoolers and educating them and giving them instructions on how to use the kits and why it's so important. And when the girls walk out of that meeting, it's amazing the way their confidence has grown in just a little short amount of time. And their shoulders are a little higher, and the boys are all like, what is in that? What do you got? What do you got? They're like these backpacks, and the girls are like, I'm not telling you, none of your bit. <laughs> but you can just see their, their confidence growing, which is so important because in a lot of places, places like where we go in South Africa, for whatever reason, maybe they can't afford it, maybe they just don't have access to feminine hygiene products, and so when it's time for their period, they just stay home and they don't go to school. And you can imagine how quickly and how far behind you get in school when you're missing a week every month. And you can imagine what kind of a disadvantage that uh, puts women in as they get into adulthood. It really limits what options are available to them. Uh, The movie last year that won the Oscar for Best Documentary Short, it's a movie called Period, End of Sentence. And it looks at the stigma around menstrual cycles in India today. And it it follows a group of women who are being empowered to kind of fight that stigma, break that stigma. They're being trained to start businesses, run businesses where they manufacture and they sell sanitary pads in all kinds of places. And those of you who are in middle school and high school right now, you ever joke with classmates about their menstrual cycle? I mean, this is a problem in all kinds of places in our world. It was a problem in Jesus' world 2,000 years ago. In Jesus' world, in this story that we've been looking at, we're told this woman has been bleeding for 12 years. 12 years of constant bleeding. She's been unclean every day, according to her faith, for 12 years. Part of what that means is she's been... Uh, completely cut off from society. Family members, friends have abandoned her. Her faith has abandoned her. Jairus is the leader of the synagogue. She cannot participate, hasn't been able to participate in the life of the synagogue, the community life of the synagogue for 12 years because she's unclean. And then Mark tells us something that would be good for us not to overlook as well. Go to the next slide and let's read this out loud together. Read it with me. She had suffered a great deal from many doctors, and over the years she had spent everything she had to pay them, but she had gotten no better. In fact, she had gotten worse. Apparently, there was no Hippocratic oath in Jesus' day. 
this promise to do no harm, but these doctors harm her. Mark says the suffering that she had, the physical suffering, was added to, the doctors actually added to her suffering. They literally bled her dry financially. Instead of helping her, they made things worse. If Jairus is kind of on one of the top rungs of the social ladder of Jesus' day, this woman is at the bottom rung. And so again, we see this contrast. Jairus comes directly in front of Jesus, kneels before Jesus. He begs Jesus, just come to my home. Jesus, if you lay your hands on my daughter, you can make her well. This woman does exactly the opposite. Comes up behind Jesus. She doesn't want to be seen. She doesn't want anyone to notice her. She's trying to stay hidden. And she doesn't ask Jesus to touch her. She's just like, if I can kind of sneak up and maybe touch the hem of his garment, maybe that would be enough power to heal me. Remember, according to the understanding of Scripture in her day, what she had been taught, if an unclean woman were to touch someone like Jesus, a clean man, a holy man, he would immediately become unclean. But that is not what happens in this story. Jesus is bringing about a dramatic reversal, a miraculous reversal, and it happens in all kinds of ways. She fights through the crowd and she touches Jesus and immediately the bleeding stops. She could feel in her body that she had been healed of her terrible condition. Instead of the terrible condition being passed from her to Jesus, power is passed from Jesus to her. Healing power. And she is healed in her body physically immediately. That's the first miracle. But there's another miracle in this story. And it's the healing of a culture, the healing of a society that Jesus has witnessed is sick in all kinds of ways. And so at this point in the story, Jesus stops and he begins to ask, who touched me? Who touched me? And the disciples are, you're, you're crazy, Jesus. There's this crowd of people. There's pushing and shoving and people bumping up to one another. What do you mean, who touched me? But Jesus is insistent. He continues to look around the crowd asking, who touched me? And the more he asks the question, the more terrified this woman becomes. When the woman realized that she could not stay hidden, she began to tremble and fell to her knees in front of Jesus. The whole crowd heard her explain why she had touched him and that she had been heal, immediately healed. Mark says she's frightened. Luke writes she's trembling in fear. What's she scared of? You've got to understand, this woman knows she is being disobedient. She's breaking every religious law in the book. She's doing exactly the opposite of what she's been told Scripture tells her to do. She's not supposed to be in public. She's in public. She's not supposed to be touching anything. She's bumping into everybody. She's touching Jesus. And now when Jesus stops and asks who touched me, she's fearful that Jesus is about to make an example of her, punish her for her unholiness, unrighteousness, sinful behavior. Again, a dramatic reversal. That's not what Jesus has in mind at all. He's calling her out of darkness and into the light. He, he's putting her in center stage and shining the spotlight on her for the sake of her, yes, but also for the sake of the crowd. He wants to be sure they see her. They want, he wants to be sure they know her story. And Jesus wants to be sure that they understand there's something different happening here. He's like, don't you dare 
Don't you dare use the word of God as justification for mistreatment of another human being. God's word never says it's okay for you to withhold love from someone. Jesus like, it's time for us to rethink things. It's time for us to rethink social ladders. Where do social ladders come from? Where, where does God say it's okay for us to think some people are, are better, are more important, are more valuable than other people? It's time for us to rethink the way we interpret Scripture. It's time for us to reread God's Word. So let's do that right now. Read Luke 8, 47 with me. Again, it's on the screen. When the woman realized that she could not stay hidden, she began to tremble and fell to her knees in front of him. The whole crowd heard her explain why she had touched him and that she had been immediately healed. Remember how she initially approaches Jesus? She came up to Jesus from behind. And then Jesus calls her out and draws attention to her. And now look, she fell to her knees in front of him. She's taken the exact same posture of Jairus. In calling her out, in calling attention to her, Jesus is raising her up, lifting her up, and he's making sure everybody in that crowd understands Jairus, this important man in the community, and this woman that you've kicked out of community for the last 12 years, they are the same. They are equal. And to drive the point home further, here's what Jesus says next. He names her. If you read through Matthew, Mark, and Luke, their account of this story, this woman never is named. She's simply called the unclean woman or the bleeding woman. But now Jesus calls her daughter. Your faith has made you well. The only daughter that we know in the story at this point is the daughter of Jairus, the important person. And so part of what Jesus is doing is making sure everybody understands this woman is the daughter of an important person as well. She's the daughter of her heavenly father. See what great love our heavenly father has for us that we should be called children of God. Now, what's Jairus been doing this whole time? Come on, Jesus. My daughter's dying. And Jesus is like, all right, I'll heal her. And off they go. And then somewhere along the way, there's an interruption and Jairus eventually figures out where Jesus is, and he sees the crowd, and he watches as this all unfolds, and he's listening to what Jesus is doing. In one ear, he hears Jesus say, daughter, your faith has made you well. And in both Mark and Luke, it says, at that exact moment, a messenger arrives from Jairus' home with this message, your daughter is dead. One ear, daughter, your faith has made you well. In the meantime, Jairus' daughter has died. What is he supposed to do with this challenging overlap, a challenging overlap that Jairus has to figure out what to do with and that you and I have to figure out what to do with. And we've been talking about miracles all month long, and I don't know about you, but it's been a great reminder to me. Remember the power that Jesus has, and at the same time, this month has been a terrible month for a lot of people in a lot of different ways. That, that sometimes we hit our knees and we pray and we ask for a miracle, and sometimes the miracle comes. But other times when we hit our knees and we pray and we ask God for help, we ask God for healing, the miracle does not come. What are we supposed to do with that? What's Jairus supposed to do with this challenging overlap of faith? Before he even has a chance to respond, Jesus turns to him and Jesus speaks. And let's read together what Jesus says to Jairus. It's at the bottom of the screen. Read it with me. Don't be afraid. Just have faith and she will be healed. 
which is what happens. Jesus ends up at Jairus' home and he, he heals this 12-year-old little girl. As I was reading through this story again this week, I don't know how many times I've, I've preached on this story. As I was reading through it again and again this week, the, the question kind of came into my mind, what kind of church does God want us to be? Right, we're Lutheran Church of Hope. And part of the hope that we have is the hope of the resurrection. And part of what that means is for followers of Jesus, we know, we know that ultimate healing comes after we die. Not this side of heaven. Uh, my Uncle Dan, who'd been fighting cancel, cancer for a couple of years, he doesn't have cancer in heaven. Healing has come. And we know that sometimes that's how it works. But at the same time, we also believe, and I think God wants us to be a church that believes the same healing power that Jesus has in these miracle stories that we read in the Gospels, that same healing power is available to us today through the power of the Holy Spirit. And God has given the gift of healing to people. And God asks us to be people like Jairus and like this woman who take this risk. They have this courageous faith. Do you think this is the first time this woman in the, those 12 years has asked for healing? Of course not. She's asked and asked and asked for 12 years, and healing did not come. And I think that's a lesson for us, that God wants us to be people who persevere with our requests, with asking for healing and asking for help, even if the help doesn't come the way we want it to come and in the time that we want it to come. I think of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the Old Testament, and uh, the king wants them to bow down and worship him, and, and they refuse to do it. And he says, okay, if you don't worship me, I'm throwing you into the fiery furnace. And they say to the king, our God is able to save us. Our God is able to rescue us. Our God has the power, even if you throw us into the fiery furnace, that we won't be burned. But even if God does not do that, even if God doesn't save us, we will never bow down and worship you. And I want us to be that kind of church, that we kneel before Jesus, we ask for the healing, we ask for the miracle, and even if it doesn't come, it doesn't shake our faith because we know, we know God is love. And love never fails. Love never gives up. Love endures through every circumstance, no matter how hopeless it might seem. And our hope is in that kind of a God. So one more clip from this movie, Life Overtakes Me. The, the, the horrors of life and the things that they've experienced have just become too much for these kids and they fall asleep. But they don't stay asleep forever. Eventually they wake up. And the medical world and the psychological world, they haven't researched it enough to be able to figure out what causes them to wake up. But I want you to watch this scene where one of the psychiatrists, he says, Here's my best guess what's making these kids wake up. It has everything to do with hope. Take a look. Recovery comes mostly after the family feels secure. It doesn't come immediately. Usually it takes several months before you can see that it's getting better. The recovery of these children is dependent on rebuilding hope. And it seems that 
the parents are the persons that are transmitting this hope. So it must be some kind of communication, the tone, the touch, the atmosphere in the room, where the children can feel that their parents are more hopeful. I want to invite our prayer partners to come forward at this time. Uh, normally we do that at the end of the service. We're going to do things a little differently today. Jesus eventually makes his way to Jairus' home. And Jesus says to the crowd that is gathered there, Oh, this girl's not dead. She's just sleeping. Everybody starts laughing at Jesus. But the tone of his voice, the power of his presence, the touch of his hand changes the atmosphere in the room. And the little girl is healed. And so we've been talking about healing. We've been talking about miracles all month long, and that's a good thing to do. But we just thought it might be a good day for us to actually practice what we preach. And so we want to give you an opportunity to hit your knees before Jesus and ask for your miracle. And I know it's scary. And, and I know that it can cause you to tremble. And I know it can fill you with doubt, like what I've been praying and praying and praying and nothing has happened. What if nothing happens again? Keep on asking. Keep on seeking. Keep on knocking. And keep on trusting that at some point, at the right time, in the right way, the door will be opened for you. So I want to ask us all to stand, and the worship team's going to lead us in a couple of songs. And if you feel the Holy Spirit moving you forward to come and ask one of these people to pray with you. You don't have to give them specifics. The Holy Spirit knows what's going on. And if you don't need a miracle right now, if you're in a great place, would you just be praying for your neighbors, the people sitting around you, and be asking God to do something that really only can happen at church. This is why we come to church, for God's healing power to be at work in us and through us.